Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possesses this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But to take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Lest I make my brother stumble. Thank you, Aiden. Good morning. It is wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we're certainly thankful that you can be here with us today. We continue studying in our book of 1 Corinthians. And as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at this section today. This seems this is a one stream of thought, chapters 8 through 10, and there's some beginning connections and some ending connections in chapter 10, and my first inclination was to try to cover all three chapters today, but uh, I'm not one who's good with brevity in, in these types of situations, and I didn't send you guys a memo to pack a lunch, so I'm going to have to kind of do a mini-series within the book of 1 Corinthians to cover this subject that Paul is talking about, about when you're right but you're wrong. And there's a lot of things in this chapter, I think, that we need to understand, but kind of getting how we got to this point. As we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul opened up in Corinthians, he talked about some possessions and positions that we have in Christ, and that led to them understanding what they were doing and the divisions that they were causing in the church, that there were some that were saying, I follow after Paul or I follow after Apollos. And Paul tells them, the problem with that is you're pointing people to the wrong direction. They're following after Paul and Apollos, and here's the cross of Christ over here, and this is what they need to be turning to. Instead, you're turning them after men and not after Christ. And he goes into chapter 2, and he begins this understanding of this worldly wisdom versus this foolishness and faith in Christ and the foolishness of the wisdom of God. But he points out and wants them to understand that it is through this foolishness, i.e. the cross, that saves the world. What the world defines as foolish is what actually saves mankind, and that was Christ and, and the cross. In chapters 3 and chapter 4, he's talking a lot about their maturity and how that they were lacking in that maturity. Think about, as Paul wrote this letter, this is actually the second letter that he had written to the church at Corinth, and it's been three to four years since he was in Corinth. There was opportunity for them to grow. There was opportunity for them to develop and mature. But they weren't doing it. He'd even sent Titus over to them. Later on, he sends Timothy to them. And this process of maturity just was not happening. And Paul comes to them and says, at the end of chapter 4, I'm going to come see you. And it's like the Father. He says, do I come with a stern hand or I come with a loving hand? Which one's going to be? You decide. In there, we kind of paused and we did a, a different lesson about valuing souls because in all of this church division and all the problems that they were having, the mutual thing that they were not seeing was one another for their souls, and those souls is valued by God. As we moved into chapter 5, there were some depravities that were going on, some uh, sexual immorality that was taking place that needed to be dealt with. And Paul says, you need to deal with this and deal with it now. You need to remove that leaven before it impacts or affects the whole loaf and causes more problems in the church. In chapter 7, 
he deals with some questions in the beginning of chapter 7 and chapter 8. He says specifically, here's the questions you asked about. They had written him a letter or something and had some questions that they wanted to know about. Chapter 7 was the subject of marriage. And chapter 8 <clears throat> is the subject of eating meat offered to, to idols. And these other problems that we see through chapter 8, 9, and 10. In chapter 11 through 14, <clears throat> we see the, the problems with worship in that chapter that we talk about so often, chapter 13, that love chapter that we look at. And I want you to know something this morning <clears throat> as we build to chapter 13, because I believe that's what Paul is building towards. That Paul is building towards love. And that love flows through to God and Christ, through worship and an understanding of that. It also flows through all the relationships that you have with one another. And as oftentimes we kind of pull chapter 13 out and use it in so many different ways, and there's nothing wrong with that, don't get me wrong. But as we open up here in chapter 8 today, you begin to see Paul building towards that love section in chapter 13. As Paul usually wonderfully does... He builds upon principle upon principle and then slaps you with the greatest principle in that. He did it in Romans whenever he turned to chapter 12. He does it here in Romans chapter 13, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So as we go through and look at what he's talking about in this chapter 8, <clears throat> we have to understand that Paul is building towards something. And he introduces the subject of love here in chapter 8. So, before we get to that, <clears throat> I think we need to understand some of the social or cultural context of what Paul was writing to at the time. And the social lives in a city such, in, such as Corinth, it involved a lot of idolatry. So, here's a, a marble. This is actually a slab that's in the Louvre in Paris. And I can't remember the name of it. Jacked it off the internet, and I can't remember what it was called. There's something about sacrifice, and they're getting the cow ready to sacrifice. And that's what was around cultural environment in Corinth in that time. I want you to think about, in most cities, when they had some sort of a public event, when they had a ceremony or a festival or even a sporting event, you know, what we do is we say the Pledge of Allegiance, or we sing the National Anthem, what they did was they offered a sacrifice. There would be an animal sacrifice that would be offered to their appropriate deities, and whatever case or city or place you went to was different in each one. In such a case, what should a Christian do? You're surrounded by all of these pagan deities and people worshiping these pagan deities. What should a Christian do? I mean... The obvious answer we would think is, well, you don't go to those public events. You don't go to sporting events. You don't go to, you know, the festivals they have. But what about other aspects of life? What about weddings and funerals? When there was a wedding or a funeral, most times the event took place in a pagan temple of some sort. And there would be a, a meal involved in this pagan temple. So what would they do? The next thing is, is what about the food that you bought in the market? Whenever they offered sacrifices to these pagan gods, the meat would first go to the priest of that pagan god, and then they would take what was left over and they would sell it in the market. So someone would have to be very conscientious, and when they went to the market and said, hey, was this, a, was this a offered to an idol for a sacrifice? There was also just the, the pressure to compromise in any probably private environment. This constant pressure and how to deal with all of these pagan events going around them. And today we could probably answer most of these questions, but you know, honestly, we have a little bit of clarity, and it's not fair for us to, through the faith and the lens of the New Testament, for us to look back and go, well, you know, this is an easy answer. This is something that people were really struggling with at that time. And so I think there's much more to this than just the answering of. Meets offered idols. As you, we go through this, as the subject of love is woven in through here, there are three things that I think that Paul really drives, and it has to do with all of this 
subject of freedoms and liberties. If you read Romans chapter 10, this is a, it's a very similar subject that Paul deals with. But in this, there's this nuance and this stress of love that Paul introduces that isn't as strong in Romans chapter 10. And he deals with this question as meets offered items in three ways. Freedom, the principle. Freedom, the understanding. And then freedom, the application. And this is the one-two punch that every person writing a sermon wants to find. Here's the principle, here's the application, and it's defined by God, and it's defined by Paul's life. Chapter 8, here's the principle of all of it, here's the understanding of it. In chapter 9, Paul says, this is how it works, look at me, this is the way this works. It's a beautiful illustration, and makes it very easy for us really as we go through, and he builds this process into their lives and also in his life as well. So, as we look in Roman or, or 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there seems to be two kinds of groups here. There's the, the group, the freedom group, that says, I'm able to do what I want to do when it comes to meat uh, sacrificed to idols. And then there's the confused group. And Paul seems to be, the first few sentences in this, seems to be kind of directed at the group that would, we would call the freedom group. When he says, now concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puff, puffs up, but love builds up. In principle, really, in principle, the freedom group, they're right. That's what Paul is saying. Really, in principle, you're right. I want you to notice the quotations around the words. All of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Or this knowledge... What Paul is reiterating back to them is the things that they have written to them or they, that he understands them as far as this position is concerned. He's essentially putting their words back to them. Everybody knows that an idol is nothing, as he says in chapter 4. An idol has no real existence. There is only one God but one. There's no God but one. So he's reiterating these things back to them and says, Yes, those things are the way it is. That is true. But what about this element that you're not understanding, and that is love? Paul suggests that there is a problem with knowledge alone when it's not combined with love. And you recognize that we don't have this problem today. The USDA has very strict regulations concerning our meat. We're not going to go get meat offered to idols. You can't even go kill a cow in your own property and take it to a restaurant and sell it. That's illegal. There's very strict regulations. So this isn't a problem that we have. But you know there are other problems that come up that people have as far as understanding liberties and freedoms. Some Christians are disturbed by smoking or drinking. Should we dance? You know, David danced before the Lord, so does that justify us dancing? There are a lot of questions or liberties that come out that people have differing opinions on. Not only do they have differing opinions, but they have differing in understanding and maturity, and that's what Paul is driving at. Knowledge is not always complete. Many times, it's actually incomplete. And this is all building to Paul's argument that something else is needed, needed to settle these problems. You cannot nearly just do it on the basis of knowledge. Now, <coughs> how we are free to act, what we can do, what we can partake in, is not, that's not the only point. You need this element of love to help understand other people's position. What does love do? He said love builds up, but knowledge puffs up. And I want you to think about that. And anybody that is grown or has children and has been married for any amount of time will understand this principle very clearly. That in our youth, many times... Our desire to be right is the only thing we can care about. 
But as you grow and develop, and if you're in a marriage and over time, you begin to understand that being right is not always right. That having love and understanding about where someone else is coming from is more important than just being right or having the knowledge. I can remember when I was younger, I had an argument with a friend of mine, and this was back when I was in high school, and I was right, and I was completely right, and I made sure that he knew that I was right, and that everybody in the room knew that I was right. I belittled him, and I lost a friendship because of it. Later on, when we talked about it, he told me that essentially that I wasn't looking at anything from his point of view. And it was something that wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like, should you drive on one side of the road or the other, or should you stop at a stop sign? It was something that wasn't really that big of a deal. I don't even remember what it was, to be completely honest. But I do remember the result of that was that I lost a friendship. I can tell you that many times in my own marriage, and my wife will attest to this, one of my biggest struggles, if probably my not probably is my biggest struggle on a long list of them, is the idea that in conflict, I'm not very good at seeing the other person's point of view. And that's not a very loving place to be, is not seeing somebody else's point of view. My wife will tell, will tell me that, you know, I'll escalate things quite quickly. I'll go from zero to a hundred really quick. And the truth is, I probably idle at 50. But her point is very clear and simple. You go from 50 to 100 over something small or not seeing somebody else's point of view just to be right. And you can be right but be wrong all day long if a relationship is hurt or if it's something that is really not that big of a deal. And so this is why in this passage there are these underlying currents of things that are much greater than just the subject of eating meat. It has to do with so much more than just eating meat. It has to do with our relationships, not with just our spouses and our children, but our spouses, but between you and I and one another. Knowledge, as Paul says here, puffs up. So what does that mean? Knowledge is self-centered. Knowledge on its own is self-centered. It doesn't consider others. Whereas, whenever you add love, it reaches out to understand. It reaches out to include. It reaches out to come to some sort of mutual agreement. There are three things about love that Paul says does that's better than just knowledge alone. Love we, knowledge generalizes where love individualizes. Love evaluates, and then love considers Christ. Not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Their conscience is weak is what he says. You know, knowledge would generalize that subject, and that's exactly what they were doing. Well, we have the freedom in such and such or whatever, or whatever area it is in this area, specifically eating meat sacrificed to idols because idols are nothing. So everybody should understand that. This general understanding that everybody should know. And what Paul says is that love actually will individualize this. Their conscience is weak. If someone's conscience is weak, what does it need? It needs, in this case, 
lack of knowledge, so it needs instruction. It needs training. It needs to be built up. And the only way you do that is through love. You take the time to educate. You take the time to facilitate. What do you do with weakness? What do you do with weakness whenever some point in time it's something that you think is something that everybody should be able to overcome? You know, my youngest child, I don't, he's probably going to get mad at me for this, but he doesn't like spiders. I thought it was because of something that I made him do at one point in time that there was some, it looked like a baby spider on the baseboard, and I, I made him clean the baseboards, and when he went to wipe it, that seemingly what looked like one spider turned into 50, and he about lost it. And I, I felt really bad, and I, you know, I was telling my wife, I think because of me, my son's going to be terrified of spiders. She goes, no, <laughs> he's been terrified of spiders since long before that. You know, I don't, I don't belittle him. I don't, you know, if I see, if we see a spider, I know he's not going to go deal with the spider. I don't say, you know, you got to man up and figure this out. I don't say that. Just take care of it. The only advice I've getting, I have given him is you better marry a country girl. What do you do with weakness? Do you berate it? Do you say, well, this is something you should understand? It's simple. These are meats that are offered to idols. Those idols are non-existent. Why aren't you eating? I cooked you a ribeye. Why aren't you eating that? Do we flaunt our strength as they were there in Corinth over their weakness and their moment of weakness? The Christian view in this, any situation like this is to help. Motivated out of love. To gain understanding. Take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. That's the second thing that love does. It evaluates. Not only just does it evaluate, it evaluates with a clarity that's driven by God and Christ. It seeks to have proper understanding of the situation. In their case, he's telling them, don't eat the meat if it's going to cause somebody else to be weak and cause them to stumble. At the beginning of this, what did he say? Not all possess this knowledge. Not all people are where you are in this process. So for you in the freedom group that understand your freedoms and your rights, you need to have patience. You need to evaluate and have understanding in this situation. Do you know there was a wonderful illustration of this that we've had in the last few years? Wonderful illustration. Masks. You remember that fiasco? Man, there were some people on one side of the aisle and there were people on the other side of the aisle. My question is, whatever side of the aisle you were on, were you willing to look across the other side and go, maybe I don't understand your position. Maybe we talk about it. Is this a Romans 12 situation and submission to authority? Was that going on in your life? Or were you one of these people on social media that was just flat going after it? I find that fascinating whenever we look at play things like this in the book of 1 Corinthians and we go, well, that's meat offered to idols, not a big deal. But the very same scenario runs up to us, smacks us right in the face. And we tend to do the same things. Isn't that amazing? How that we're not much different than they were 2,000 years ago. 
that we've got the same problems, the same unwillingness to look across the aisle and go, well, maybe I don't understand. Maybe I need to see things from your point of view. Maybe your soul is what is important, and I don't want your soul to be in danger in this situation. Isn't that the objective? Isn't that what we want out of all of this? To be together forever? It's not important whether it's about meat or not, or whether we're drinking or not, or whether we're smoking or not. The momentary indulgent is a trivial thing. Compare that to a brother's growth or a sister's growth. There's two sides of the spectrum here. My rights, my freedoms, my brother or sister's growth, development, or even at worst, them leaving, them stumbling, and them sinning. Those are the two lines on the spectrum. Paul says you've got to evaluate that, and the only way you can evaluate that properly is evaluating it in love. The third thing Paul talks about, points out, is that if we do this and we know it hurts someone, we're really not only sinning against them, but we're also sinning against Christ. And I find that to be extremely convicting. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which, you are, which are offered to idols? So the illustration here was if someone sees you eating meat that was offered to idols, if you're in a temple and you're partaking in this, is there a moment that their conscience, their weak conscience, could cause them to sin? And he says, yes. And not only yes, but if you take your freedom and say, this is my freedom, my right, we're Americans, that's what we like to do, we have our rights. And you take it to the extent that you would cause someone who is weaker and not understanding to sear their own conscience, or not sear their own conscience, but have them question their conscience and cause them to partake in a moment that they don't understand the situation, not only are you causing them to sin, but now you're sinning against Christ. And he says there, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? So if you're in this freedom group, and this is what I can do and what I can't do group, the same Christ died for you as died for the, the one that's weak and doesn't understand. So in that spectrum of the strong and the weak and trying to find resolution or understanding and building and developing, he points it out and shows that this is the problem. This is the reality. Christ died for both of you. You're not more important than they are just because you may have a different understanding or a more whole understanding of the subject. They're just as important as you are. Love will always consider Christ. And the application of our lives today in any of those scenarios that we like to cast out, smoking, drinking, dancing, whether or not you should wear a mask, where is Christ in the situation? Where is Christ in the conversation? Because that's what love does. When you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. In many situations today, arguments arise over various things, and it's not a question of somebody's conscience being weak. It is a question of someone's prejudice being irritated. That's different. This isn't a passage that we go and we take and say, I've got some sort of irritation, prejudice, something I don't like. And because I don't like it, you need to do what I say. We don't use passages first, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 8 or Romans chapter 10 
for lack of a better term, to hold the church hostage. That's not what Paul is getting at in this passage. Because neither one of those positions are a position of love. And neither one of those positions is a position that's considering Christ as the center of all of it. The key word here is in chapter and verse 10. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at a table, if anyone see, if any man see thee which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. You know, there's a lot of situations in life where we don't control who sees what. And if I have a freedom, you have a freedom to go eat in the temple, and somebody sees you eating in the temple, does that mean you just have to stop eating meat? The question isn't so much about them just stopping and eating meat as them growing with one another. Paul took it to the next level. He said, I'll eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. If this was such a controversy in that congregation, Paul said, I won't eat meat anytime I'm around. I won't do that for your sake. For the sake of that congregation, I won't eat meat. I find that fascinating. How many times in that position do we put ourselves in a position where I'm right, I have the knowledge, I have the information. So I'm not going to give up whatever it is I need to give up. But you look at the contrast of that where Paul Flat said, you guys have a problem, and if that problem is something that when visiting, when I'm there, I'm not going to eat meat. The extent of which he would go to to give up something trivial for the betterment of somebody else. Now back to the subject of there are times that people see somebody eating in a temple. They see somebody having a margarita at dinner. There's time for conversation, and there's time for growth, and there's time for understanding. You know what else that does? That builds relationships. When we take the time to help each other and love and say, this is my understanding of a subject. What is your understanding of the subject? Can we come to some sort of mutual point in this? What does that do? That builds relationships. That helps the congregation grow. Paul begins to examine this in his own personal life and how he conducted himself with the church at Corinth. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul multiple times has to defend his apostleship to the church at Corinth, but this is the greatest defense of all of it. Whenever in 2 Corinthians, he has to go through all the problems that he had in defense of his apostleship, but this is the greatest defense in my opinion. The simple fact that you are who you are was because of Paul. You didn't know about Jesus. You didn't know about His life-saving salvation. You didn't know any of that because I was the one that gave it to you. You wouldn't be who you are, the congregation you are, if it wasn't for me, Paul. And that's not a bragging situation. That's an understanding situation. That they needed to understand who He was and what He did. And He says, this is my defense of those that would examine me. Do we have the right to eat and drink? He's talking about the freedoms and rights. Do we have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the, right, the same right to take a believing wife? 
A believing wife that could travel with them. This also answers the question, should a preacher be married? Just in case you're curious. As the other apostles do and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So here was the problem. Paul was talking about freedoms. He's been talking about rights. And he's asking these questions. Do I not have these things? Do I not have these exact same freedoms? The church of Corinth owed their very existence to him. He goes on to give a better illustration of this. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Three occupations that he lays out here. He says, the soldier doesn't provide for himself. Everybody else provides for himself. The soldier doesn't, the soldier doesn't have a craft or a, or craft or a trade that he applies that brings money in. The person that plants the vineyard, why shouldn't he have some of his own labor? Why shouldn't he have some of the fruit that he's grown and developed and nurtured? The one that takes care of the flock, why can't he have some, some of the milk? Well, if the answer to all of these is obvious. Well, yes, of course, those in the military, we should take care of them. Yes, of course, those that plant in a vineyard and raise a vineyard, they should have some of their own fruit. Yes, of course, those that raise a flock should be able to have some of the milk. Paul is every one of these. He's a soldier in the cause of Christ. He's growing a vineyard. He's nurturing a flock. Why should Paul be able to rip, reap some of the benefits and the fruits from these? If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share that, this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So if you ever wanted a question to whether we should pay the preacher, there you go. If you wanted the answer to that, it's fairly clear. Paul goes on to further illustrate in this same passage, we're not going to read all of it, goes on to further illustrate the fact that by the gospel, the very gospel which he is an administer of, he should be paid by. Now, Paul isn't advocating that he should become, you know, the finest donkeys, the chariot that he can roll around in. That's not what he's advocating for. But what he is simply saying is that the gospel, the soldier, the gospel... The vineyard, the gospel, the cattle, it all should pay him because that's the work that he does. But does Paul ever take it? I want you to consider the irony of the previous chapter and those that are strong in their knowledge and those that are weak. As Paul has laid this out, he just completely flips this whole thing on its head. Those that had this attitude and what seems to be a very arrogant attitude that I have this freedom, that I have this knowledge, that I possess this knowledge. And then Paul just flips this entire thing on its head in defense of his apostleship, in defense of them paying them through the gospel, by the gospel. And the reality is what he is saying, now that you thought you were strong in knowledge, look who's weak. Paul turns this entire principle on them to understand from his point of view. They know who Paul is. They know what Paul is. But what he does say is he's not made any use of these rights. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul didn't use the money at Corinth for himself. He didn't get a dime of money from the church at Corinth for himself. Why? There were other churches that supported Paul. There were other congregations that supported Paul. But Paul in his wisdom 
knew that he was not going to be able to deal with a contentious congregation, a problematic congregation that over years and years as you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and all of the efforts and attempts and people that had been sent to them that just didn't seem to get it. And if Paul was having to continue, continually defend himself as an apostle, do you think it would have done any good for him to take money from that congregation? He had the freedom. He had the liberty. He had everything that is he defined, the vineyard, the soldier, the milk, or the cattle. He was doing all of those things. Why shouldn't it pay him? Because it wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about him. Who it was about was them. I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Now as Paul saying, I want to boast in this great ability that I have to withhold myself from not receiving funds from you? No. What he's driving at is he wants them to know this is his motivation. This is what it's all about. For necessity is laid upon me, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul's motivation in all of this wasn't about himself. It was about the congregation at Corinth. It was so that they would understand, so that they would know, so that he could continue to grow the gospel. And the application of that is the freedom that he has, and he then takes it and applies it very clearly. For though I am free from all, I have made my servant myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the weak I became weak. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So now Paul's gone full circle from the beginning to the end of this. You have a problem. There are those that have understanding of freedoms and there are those that don't have understanding of those freedoms. There is the strong and there is the weak. Here's how this works. The love that you, which, which you see these things, they're not going to get solved unless you have that love. Now, because I love you, and because I love this congregation, this is what I have done. I have not taken any dime, a dime of any money. I have not done any of that. I have not allowed the gospel to provide for me in a material sense, as it should, all for the sake of you, the weak. And there is the irony in that. They were weak. And Paul was strong. But he didn't take any part in his rights because he wanted to share with them in the blessings. He wanted them to grow. He wanted them to develop. I want you to notice that Paul says this multiple times throughout his letters. And he never says, I want, to sh- I want you to share in my blessings. It's always the opposite. I want to share in your blessings. I want to share in your growth and your development. And I want you to think about the personal application there involved in this. Number one. This really does require us to look at our maturity process. I'm 47 years old. It took a lot for me to get in my maturity process where I'm at, and there's sometimes I'm not very mature, I'll be honest. There took a lot of coaching from other people in my life took a lot of conversations from my wife to get me to where I'm at. And I'm not even close to where I need to be. But when a problem, a difference of opinion, 
a difference of understanding comes up. I feel that I'm better than I was when I was 20. And I can't expect for my 13-year-old son to be where I'm at at 47. It takes patience and love to look at somebody else and go, you're not where I am because of all the things that I have had done for me. Because other people loved me and took that time. That helps us to look at the situation through their eyes and a proper focus of love. Number two, this requires us to know who we serve. The problems they were having there in Corinth came from a situation in which there were those that were saying, I have this freedom and I have this right. You can just deal with it. Did they know who was weak in this situation? You know, if I know Jason has a problem with pork, I'm not, and I know he doesn't. I mean, we're going to suspend reality. If Jason has a problem with pork, I'm not going to have him over my house and have bacon-wrapped ham hocks or anything like that. I'm not going to have pork-wrapped pork. Why? Well, because I know Jason. I know that where Jason has a struggle. I know where Jason has a weakness. You know, I talked to Trevor during the COVID thing. Trevor and I had a lot of conversations, a lot of phone conversations, good conversations. Trevor knows my weaknesses. Now, Trevor would never come to me, I would hope, and use a weakness against me. Why? Because Trevor knows me. How am I supposed to know the struggles and weaknesses of you, this body, this portion of the Lord's kingdom, if I don't ever spend any time with you? If I don't have conversations with you? This only happens when we take the time to get to know everybody in this room. This is only successful when we're willing to put our lives on the side a little bit and look at somebody else and go, I need to get to know them. That's the challenge this morning. Find someone you don't know and get to know them. You want to spend eternity in heaven with these people in this room today, don't you? Why don't you start getting to know them now? So that we can all grow and develop together for the same goal and the same reward. The third thing in this application is it requires that we appreciate what Christ has done for us. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul levied some of the things that he did so that they would understand their position outside of Christ. And we have got to understand, if we want to resolve problems, whether it be of opinion or strengths and weaknesses, we all have to appreciate what Christ has done for us. And you have got to understand that Christ knows everything that we have gone through, and He can come and understand from our point of view just as well. And I want you to think about that. That Christ was God manifest here on earth, and He became a man. He struggled with the same things that we struggled with. And without Him, we don't have victory. Without Him, we don't have salvation. Without Him, all of this is a moot point. 
Without him, this is nothing more than a social club. We appreciate what he did for us so that we can grow and help and encourage and build and love so that we all have the same reward. As Christ sat there hanging on that cross, being mocked, being ridiculed, being spat upon, being misunderstood, this was the reason. This group of people, this body of people, and not only this body of people, but as many as we can add. My concern this morning isn't the church the world over. My concern this morning is this building and this congregation. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a concern about the church the world over. Don't get me wrong. The challenge is for us to understand all of those things, apply and understand our process, understand those who we serve with, and understand exactly what it was that Christ did for us and got us to where we are. Because without Him, there is no victory. This morning, I hope that we can look at these passages and we can understand exactly that it's not just about eating meat. That love has so much more to do with just eating meat. That it's not simply just about resolving problems. That there's so much more to it. That there is growth and development and learning. And we take these principles and we take the time to not just apply them to our life, as we oftentimes say, but we think about them. Where are we lacking? What challenges do we have in life that we can overcome that we might make this body better? We oftentimes talk about that body. It's coming up in a few chapters. Paul's laying the groundwork for that. This morning, consider your relationship. Not just with those around you, but consider your relationship with Christ. What has Christ done for you? Without Him, there's no salvation. If you've not taken the time to submit to Him and take part in that salvation, ask the question, why not? If it's a lack of understanding and knowledge, there are, we have elders here that can help in that understanding. There are many men in this congregation that can help in that understanding. Talk to someone. Get understanding. We also know that sometimes we just have problems and we have struggles. Sometimes we're just weak. Sometimes we need a hug. Sometimes we need a prayer. If you would find yourself in either of those groups, we ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.